It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I will just offer this. Maybe Ken doesn't know this, but Don and Nancy are actually away on a little R&R. It's next week when they're headed to see Matt. And the R&R is based on Pastor Appreciation Month, just so you know. We as a church wanted them to get away, so just so you could know. I hope they're there anyway, because I reserved the hotel room for them, so they better be having a, an enjoyable time um, last night and this morning. Um, and thanks to all that have responded. It, it has been a different morning, but God has been very, very present in all of this, um, much more than we could have expected. So it's a privilege to come off the bench and, and uh, to be up here for uh, the second week here as we're in a series entitled Postcards from the Prophets um, and, and what they have to say, both the major and minor prophets, what they have to say of us about life and, and how, how it points us to Jesus. And this is especially appropriate as we look ahead to Advent, and just a word about these two categories of major and minor. It's not that there's a major league prophet and a minor league prophet. There's no JV or, or major key, if you think musically, in a minor key. It basically just has to do with prophets that are shorter in length in terms of what they have written. And this morning we look at the prophet Habakkuk and what he has to say in three brief chapters. That will be um, our focus this morning. Um, just to kind of, and we'll look at the setting. Um, for this, and then we'll look at how the prophet in chapter 1 wrestles with God, in chapter 2, how he waits and watches with God, and then in chapter 3, sort of the climax of the whole thing, how he worships God, how he wrestles, he watches and waits, and then he worships, and I'll have some summary points, and that'll be our focus on Habakkuk this morning. I would just anchor this whole thing with a centerpiece verse, we'll talk about it in chapter 2. Just a phrase, and the righteous shall live by faith. And the righteous shall live by faith. It's really the centerpiece. If we, if we do this, and God blesses us this morning, if we walk out with what that really means amid everything that's going on, what it means to walk by faith and live by faith, then God will have blessed us this morning. So the setting setting for Habakkuk is hard to determine, but as, as you look at the events, he seems to be a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, and most of the events that he is going to be in dialogue with God about have to do with the um, people of Israel being taken into captivity by the Babylonians. That's when this is happening. So if you want extra credit, you want to go back and actually read the story of when and how this happens, you can look at Second Kings and look, look at the prophecy of Daniel. That's when these events seem to be taking place that Habakkuk is writing about. And he's writing both to the people of God and also he's writing about these events to come, pointing us forward. All the prophets are pointing us forward. The, word, the name Habakkuk is also interesting, and we'll talk about this. It can be translated two ways, to wrestle or to embrace. And in this brief book with three chapters, we'll see how the prophet does both. He wrestles with God over some of the most profound and challenging questions of our faith, and that also embraces God, to wrestle and to embrace. So the biographical detail, in terms of who Habakkuk is, is pretty easy. There's absolutely zero said about him. Literally, he is mentioned nowhere else in the Old Testament. There's no reference in any other book. So all that scholars have gleaned has come from these three brief chapters. There's no biographical detail. We don't know where he went to school, what kind of degrees he had, where he's published, what kind of following he has. And I would suggest to you that there's kind of a point to be made about that. 
God apparently does this and believes in this. I mean, you think of the prophet Amos, right? If you were holding a conference on prophets and you asked Amos to send in his resume, he was a tender of sheep and he raised figs. Well, could you send us a few more elements of bio? We kind of really need to hype this up a little bit. No? Amos is just a tender of sheep and a raiser of figs. Habakkuk? There's nothing said. So God apparently is extremely comfortable using people as long as they are true to his word. And it tells me a couple of things. Number one, it's easy in this environment, in this day and age, to put Christian leaders and speakers up on a pedestal and how big is their following, how big is their church, but it's a reminder to all of us that the message is always more important than the man or the woman. It is always about God's word going forward. Therefore, he uses Habakkuk. And therefore, we should also take that as a promise and a challenge that he can also use us. He can also use us provided we're humble before his word. In Isaiah 66, it says, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. Not in servile, God's going to crush me fear, but in reverent obedience, who trembles at my word. Or this passage from Isaiah 50, that I rest with a lot. Isaiah says, The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that will sustain the weary. But then listen to this. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens me as one to listen. To listen as one being taught. And it's a reminder that all of us, when we listen with a teachable spirit, need to be prepared that God may give us his word for someone else. Amen? So let's pray and just ask God this morning. Lord, we would ask that you teach us and instruct us. Awaken our ears to listen. Our humble prayer and expectation is that we would encounter you in complete surrender. Lord, we claim only your righteousness through Christ. and We desire to learn what it means to live by faith. Amen. So, that's the setting, right? It's the time when the Babylonians are sweeping in to take the Israelites captive. We'll look at how he wrestles, then watches and waits, and then worships. Chapter 1, he gets right to the point. Listen to what Habakkuk writes in chapter 1. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong, wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. I'll just say that again. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. It's written over 2,700 years ago, but it rings true, doesn't it? But note the directness of his prayer. He is wrestling with God, and his complaint is timing. How long, O Lord? When will you show up? When will you show up? Now get ready. Listen to God's answer. Beginning in verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told I am raising up the Babylonians, 
that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. And if we had time to go into the rest of this, they're described as leopards, as the desert wind, as wolves, devouring prey, as vultures. So what's God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint? How long? Guess what? It will get worse. I am raising up a people to take Israel into captivity. Powerful images. But notice that Habakkuk experiences a moment of truth here. He doesn't just say, well, I'm done with this. Or he doesn't say, okay, I'll be glad to write that down and tell the people about it. What does he do? He complains again. He stays in the wrestling match. Listen to his second prayer here. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, O Lord, appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Is that a bold prayer or what? In other words, his first complaint was, how long? When will you show up? His second complaint is, how can you tolerate this? How can you tolerate this? What he is struggling with is something that everyone in this room has struggled with, and that is the difference between God's revelation, who he says he is, in his word, and our experience. What God says about him and how we reconcile that with what goes on in our daily life. How long is this going to on? Are you not seeing this? How can you let this happen? Are you there? Is anyone awake? If this is how, who you say you are, how can you let this happen? Have you been there? How can you tolerate evil? That's Habakkuk's second complaint. But notice that he presses in. He stays in this wrestling match with God. I have a friend, I, I see him once a year, I think I might have shared this before, he's one of my college buddies and we go to Yosemite and some years back he was just looking across the campfire and talking about all the things that had gone wrong in his life. Near bankruptcy through a kind of getting messed over by a quote-unquote Christian contractor with a building project and his job was in the toilet and he was struggling with his kids and he's looking at all the chaos and divisiveness in society. He looked across the campfire and he says, you know, if I had God's sovereignty and power, I could do a better job of running this place than he does. We feel that way, don't we? Where are you, God? How can you tolerate this? Well, note what happens next. Chapter 2. He's been in this wrestling match, and God has told him what's going to happen, that the Babylonians are coming, but it is still a part of his sovereign plan. So Habakkuk makes a step of faith, and he watches and waits. Chapter 2 opens like this. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what the Lord will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So the rampart is like a high point across the city where he's going to wait and station himself. And the interesting choice of words here, I will look to see what the Lord has to say. It's pretty clear that while God is big on explanation, He's going to be bigger on demonstration. Watch me work. That's God's message. He says it like this. 
Write down the revelation. Make it plain on the tablets so that the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits the appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and not delay. God sets Habakkuk straight on what Peter Kreft calls the grammar of existence as he sits there on the rampart. Grammar, of course, is you know the structure of the English language, right? Sentences and syntax, how things fit together. What's the grammar of existence? It's pretty simple. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. And note how Habakkuk stays in that space. So in chapter 2, then, God goes on to describe how he's going to raise up the Babylonians, right? We don't have time to go into depth on this, but this this impetuous, evil, idolatrous people. God condemns them in chapter 2 for their oppression, for their bloodshed, for slave labor, for unjust leadership, for their drunkenness, for their idolatry. And Habakkuk is instructed to write, ultimately, that the calamity that will come upon Israel will actually be surpassed by the calamity that comes on the Babylonians. It'll be surpassed by what they're going to experience. It's hard to understand But God is using a corrupt kingdom for his ultimate purpose and plan. That's a summary of chapter 2. Now, tucked in here, in in this section, which we don't have time to to look at in great detail, are a couple of nuggets, right, as Habakkuk watches and waits and learns what it means to walk by faith. Walk by faith in what? Well, number one, faith in God's promise. Tucked into chapter 2 is this famous passage that's echoed in other prophets, that the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the covenant promise of God. Faith in God's providence, verse 3, though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come. The promise that all events in history are under God's sovereign control. All the woes, the wonders, the clarity, the chaos, the miracles, the madness will one day make sense according to his sovereign plan. And in his time, he watches and he waits. Let's just be honest and say that one of the things that makes God so difficult to deal with is that his sense of time is almost always different than our own. Right? What's it say in Psalm 90? A thousand days are like a day or a watch of the night. So we, have, we struggle with that. But though it linger, wait for it. And lastly, faith in God's power. Chapter 2 ends with this. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. And that leads Habakkuk to another moment of truth. Remember, he's been wrestling with God. He's been watching. He's been waiting. He's been listening and instructed to write this down and chisel this on tablets of stone. All of this, by the way, is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. We never are told how he actually takes this to the people. So it's this wrestling conversation with God. What does Habakkuk do? He says, I've said my piece. You know what I think I should do? I should follow God's instructions. I should wait. And I should rest in the perspective that God has given me. Because perspective is everything. One of the other friends that I gather with in Yosemite, um, once a year from my college buddies, he's an attorney who has spent a lot of time with Gary Sinise's organization. Gary Sinise was in, um, what is it, Forrest Gump. 
does a lot of work with vets. And so oh, my buddy has probably been to Normandy about 10 different times to celebrate the anniversary of D-Day, the D-Day invasion. And he was talking about these different discussions. There aren't too many vets left, right, who were there on, what is it, June 6, 1944. But he sat in on a discussion and two vets were interviewed and the first vet talked about what it was like to be on Omaha Beach. And the bloody carnage as he looked around. And he said, we're going to lose. No way. We're dead meat, literally. We're going to lose. And the very next vet to speak was a vet who had been assigned to the aerial reconnaissance force, the ones that were dropping paratroopers behind enemy lines. And the aerial, in, in, what he said is, when he could see the carnage on the beach, as real and as violent as it was, but he could also see the paratroopers. He could see the impact of the, uh, of the bombardment the advance of troops. What was his perspective? We're going to win. Perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. And some would say that the victory in Europe, right, World War II, was really won on June 6, 1944, right? Even though there were many battles to be fought, and the same is true for us, victory was won at Calvary. And ultimately, right, when we cross over, that'll be VE Day, May, May 6th, whatever it is, 1945. So perspective is everything. So by going to the rampart and watching, God provides Habakkuk with that all-important perspective. He could look down at the chaos, but could also point forward and hear what God is up to and trust in his sovereign plan. So in chapter 1, he wrestles with God, and in chapter 2, he watches and he waits, and then in chapter 3, moment of truth, he worships. Here's how chapter 3 starts. O Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in your day, in your wrath. Remember mercy. He worships, but note how he does it. He still does not compromise his request. Lord, make them known in our day. He still is bold in asking God to act. You are who you say you are. I get it, but Lord, I still plead with you. Make these deeds known in our day. And then this great line, in wrath, in your wrath, remember mercy. By the way, a promise that would be fulfilled some 700 years later, just outside Jerusalem. Where mercy would triumph over judgment at Calvary. So the prophet points forward. And he worships. So he requests. And the second thing he does is he remembers. And I don't know a lot about this, but this whole section that we don't have a lot of time to go into is apparently a really good picture or example of Hebrew poetry. And what Habakkuk does is he remembers. He looks back. And he looks at all the ways God has acted throughout history to guide and guard his people with his covenant love, including the Exodus and Jericho and Gideon and David and Goliath and all points in between. So he requests in his worship. He's bold before the Lord, and then he looks back and he remembers all the ways God has acted. And that's a helpful discipline for us, isn't it? When we are tempted to give up hope, right, and we feel like in the moment there's no hope, we look back, just like the hymn writer, through many dangers, toils, and snares, You've already come. Well, grace got me this far, so grace will get me home. So he remembers, 
and he resolves. He resolves. In verse 16, he says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Okay, if you say this is what's going to happen, I will wait patiently for it. So he requests, he remembers, he resolves, and then lastly, he rejoices. Listen to this. Verses 17 to 19 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there's no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like that of a deer. Now it's an agricultural economy. But if you wanted to do a translation, this is rock bottom, right? This is rock bottom. For us, we'd say the economy's in the toilet, violence is rampant, the world is fraught with injustice and divisiveness. There's absolutely no hope. That would be our version of that. And that's Habakkuk. He still rejoices, not in some sort of self-help, bootstrap kind of mindset. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Now think about it. Chapter 1. How do you tolerate this? When will you show up? How can a good and holy God look on this evil? And he's wrestling with God. Chapter 2. He gets on this rampart. He says, okay, I will see what the Lord will say. I will watch and see how this unfolds. In faith. And chapter 3, he gives this extravagant prayer of worship. How does he get there? How does he do it? How does he go from doubt and lament right, to extravagant praise. Does his circumstance change? Does it? No. In fact, it actually gets worse. There is no change in his circumstances. What has changed is his character and his faith in the covenant promise of God. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. That's where he lands, not resting in his circumstances. So, some conclusions, right? What do we take away from this? He wrestles, waits, worships. What about us? Well, these are my, I think I shared this last year, these are the things that I'm wrestling with in my life, my homework assignments, so I get to pass them on to you. So if you come up with other ideas, you can let me know. But here are some lessons from Habakkuk. Number one, we would do well to follow his example to call on the Lord when we need help. We he takes his complaint to the only place that makes sense, and he should, as should we. He doesn't worry or wallow in self-pity. All of Scripture includes this kind of lament and wrestling with God. Therefore, we should not be ashamed. We should never feel like we have to sand the edges off our prayers. Think about it. God knows what's on or in your heart already better than you do. He just wants us to tell it to him so that it can become a fellowship between us. So he takes it to the only place that makes sense. And the second thing that happens when we pray is it is the great lampoon of the pride because it will rid us of any conceit or belief or delusion that we can handle things on our own because we can't. He couldn't. So number one, he prays. He takes it, as the writer of Hebrews would say, to the throne of grace. That's where he goes. Number two, we'd be well encouraged to follow 
his decision and his discipline to watch and wait. This is why the Bible seems to put such a high premium on waiting, on waiting for God's timing. Stated differently, to quote Alistair Begg, God is not so unkind as to answer all our prayers when we want them answered. As he said, unkind. Why? Well, this is part of remembering. Have you ever had a situation where you prayed for something earnestly and it didn't happen, but later on, you actually realized that that delay or denial of the different answer was actually better than the thing you were praying for? In other words, what you thought was a no was actually a better yes. Can you resonate with that? If not, I would encourage you to rest with that. And sometimes it may take years or decades for us to understand that. I was with my dad over the last couple of days because his caregiver is out, and, and he, we talked about this. It took you know, my mom and dad over 40 years before they could even, even talk about my oldest brother who died Christmas Day, 1945. 40 years to even talk about it. It may take time, honestly. And if we're really honest about it, many of the prayers and the things we seek God for we may never get an answer for this side of heaven. But God is still God. That's what walking by faith is all about. And I would suggest to you that when it comes to waiting and watching, that God's delays are always purposeful. He may be dealing with my selfishness. He may be dealing with my pride. He may be saving me from myself in my life and my prayers. But he will always be reminding me that more important than the things that I pray for is the God I pray to and who I'm becoming in that journey of faith. Number two. Number three, we do well to follow the prophet's example that though there is no change in circumstance, he says, yet I will be joyful. He worships. He commits himself to joy as a perspective, and when he turns to joy, it actually opens up things to be joyful about. I think it was theologian Reuben Albus who said that hope is hearing the music of the future. Hearing the music of the future. Faith is to dance to it now. Faith means to step out in that hope. And finally, number four, when we look around at what's happening in the world and what a mess we've made, made of things and, and, and everything else, and, and we encounter people and they say, you know, with all this going on, you know, this whole idea of revelation versus experience, who God says he is, you know, why doesn't your God do something? We need to be prepared to say our God has done something and point them to Calvary and how 700 years after Habakkuk write this, onto the scene would stride Jesus of Nazareth and the only battle that matters will be won and we need to point people to the cross and the empty tomb. Don't we? And then we need to point them here and talk about what our own experience is like because of our belief in Jesus. The reality is all of us, all of us have a hole in our life that will forever go unfilled until we realize that we were made by God, made for God, and we're intended to be in relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. All of us. And we're nothing but a room full of broken, broken souls. And others need to know what it is like to walk with Jesus. And they don't need us to sugarcoat it. They need to know what it's like when, 
we're walking with Jesus and our kids drive us crazy, when the job stinks, when we lose loved ones, when we're not sure what that diagnosis means, that's what our friends and neighbors need to hear, not some sort of sugar-coated thing, do they? Right? It goes like this. I had problems, I came to Jesus, I don't have any more problems. Is that the Christian experience? I don't think so. No. But I know who has control. I know who has redeemed me and drawn me to himself. And that's who I walk with. We talked about waiting. And next to waiting, as a test of our faith, most often it's suffering. That's a great test of our faith. And if it's not suffering, it's the silence of God. It's called the perfect storm. Waiting, suffering, and silence. And sometimes all three of them come together. And we need to know that God walks with us through that. And as Ken said earlier, when it comes to the body of Christ, sometimes God puts us in someone else's storm so that when they lose hope, we can be there to buoy them up. That's the message of Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. I will choose to rejoice in God and in my sovereign Lord. I'll share two things, and then we're done. On this issue of perspective, I learned this from my mentor, and I, I, I find myself using this a lot. When things are not going well, or they're actually in the toilet, you know, when it all hits the fan, and like the piece of graffiti I saw, whatever hits the fan is never equally distributed. I'll just leave it at that. I won't go into detail on that analogy. But when I'm in that place in space, and I'm downcast and discouraged, people might say, how are you? And I'm tempted to say, well, other than the fact that I'm forgiven and I have fellowship with Jesus both now and in heaven, things aren't going that well. That's the long version. And it's true. Now I just say, and some of you have actually heard this from me, I'm fundamentally sound. And the things that truly matter. And that's what Habakkuk does. He rests in that promise. Will you permit me to close with one more thing? I think if you were in second service last week, you'll know I've been spending time with my dad. So sure enough, last night, right before he goes to bed, he said, what are you preaching on? He says, I'm, I'm, pre I'm preaching on faith and the mysteries of God's providence. providence. And he says, I, I wrote a poem about that. So you ready? Here's dad's poem about faith, and then we'll pray. When you deal with your problems, two voices compete. One is your faith, the other is defeat. You choose which voice you want in control. One binds you up tight. The other frees your soul. So give life to your faith by speaking it out. I love this. Just tell your problems what your faith is about. Just tell them how big your God really is and pass them on up and let them be his. Let's pray. Lord, as we, uh, as we close this off, you know what's on our hearts. We so desire, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. So wherever we are this morning, Lord, where we need your strong presence or your hand to hold, your word to bear us up, a hug, whatever we need, Lord, we just pray that you would show up and provide it here in our midst. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we can stand here in boldness and confidence, Lord, that that you are in sovereign and loving control of all the events in our lives and all the world around us. So we trust you. We trust the mystery of your, God, of your loving providence and your unfailing love. And now we sing of that, Lord, as we worship you together. Amen.